My name is Scott Chaloner and you are listening to the Leaders' Council podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. Now, as regular listeners of this show will know very well, part of our mission here at the Leaders' Council is to bring you a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. And to this end, we're joined on today's programme by Richard Dorney, Director at StrongMind Resiliency Training. StrongMind is a specialist provider of training in mental health awareness, resilience and trauma management. Um, Richard, a very warm welcome to you today and by all means, thank you for joining us on the show. It's a real pleasure having you back. Thank you, Scott. It's lovely to be on. It's brilliant having you uh, back on the show, uh, Richard. Um, Obviously, for those uh, first-time listeners that might not be familiar with Richard and StrongMind, it isn't the first time that he's joined us on the show. And we've talked um, a lot about uh, things such as uh, resilience um, and that sort of thing on the uh, the programme before. And I'm sure we'll get on to uh, to that again later. Um, But for those, Richard, that haven't heard of StrongMind before and haven't come across you. Could you just sort of expand upon sort of that initial introduction, please, and just talk to us about the kind of work that you do, but also those organisations that you work with as well? Sure, Scott, it'd be a pleasure. <clears throat> so StrongMind is a specialist provider of resilience, mental health awareness, and particularly trauma management training. So we do tend to work with organisations that are in the toughest jobs in the country. So people like the police, um, and specifically over the last probably two and a half years, we've done a lot of work uh, supporting our brilliant NHS staff who've been under incredible stress. So we work with those sorts of organisations and uh, through the government campus as well with the civil service. But we also have a a division that uh, supports corporate clients too. So lots of people in the corporate sector, of course, are under huge amounts of stress to meet targets and various other things. And so anything we can provide around psychologically informed management for leaders, mental health for managers, and basically to help organisations improve mental health in the workplace, that's really what we're about. Mm. So it's the training of organisations and individuals, isn't it, rather than sort of direct coaching, therapy and clinical interventions that you're specialised in, from what I'm gathering? Absolutely. So we we don't do therapy. We don't do mental health coaching. In fact, we, we very much keep that at arm's distance. What we concentrate on are the practical elements of looking after people and providing management to them, informed management, when they're under extreme stress. There's one thing we do know, that when someone isn't well managed um, in those circumstances, it tends to make them worse, Um, and even after traumatic stress. So people talk a lot about what's happened to a person during the traumatic event, but what we do know from research is that what happens in the period after that and the way they're supported and managed is equally important. So, yeah, so we stay away from therapy. We're very much about management. Mm. Very much about management, but it is still those people that have been exposed to kind of, you know, high stress, traumatic situations that you are working with, and it's building resilience within them. So in this context, um, what is this type of resilience that we're talking about that you sort of train them up in? Yeah, so resilience is, um, is a widely used word, and it tends to mean different things to different people and is used in all sorts of different contexts. So what we're talking about here is personal resilience. So uh, how a person looks after themselves and how we can encourage others to be more resilient. That's that's what we're really talking about. Um, And I think the foundation for that, the thing to understand, I think, is that resilience is the foundation stone for good mental health. So where we have people who don't have good resilience, often through no fault of their own, um, they can be vulnerable. 
So it's about helping people to build that resilience. And in terms of what that resilience is, again, there are many, many different definitions. I prefer one by uh, Anne Master, who's a, um, a, sorry, a psychologist, who says that um, resilience is positive adjustment under challenging life circumstances. Now, I use that one because it implies there is something we need to do. So in other words, resilience isn't just innate. You're not just born with it. There are things that we can do to build resilience and, of course, to encourage resilience in others as well. Interesting. So when it comes to improving our own resilience or self-resilience, I'm not entirely sure what the most accurate term would be there. How do we go about doing that? How can we kind of better that within ourselves as individuals? I think probably a start point is to think of resilience uh, as a process. So rather than just a thing that you have, it is a process that you go through and, and that applies throughout life. So think of it as a series of things that we need to do and improve upon and equally a series of things that we need to stop doing or we need to avoid. So I think one of the, again, one of the foundation pillars, if you like, is self-awareness. So by that, I mean understanding yourself your personality, what's going on with you, how do you react to stress, what's the impact of that on the people around you. So it's being self-aware. And all too often, of course, we even recognise in ourselves, sometimes we do things that, you know, we later realise actually we could have done better, but we didn't regulate our emotions, which is another foundation pillar. You know, being able to control and understand our emotions. So those two, self-awareness and emotional regulation, are absolute pillars of resilience and when you understand that then you can start to do things to improve your resilience so um, improving social skills the way we interact with other people the way we read other people and uh, also building networks of social support as well so when things too do get tough uh, we've got someone who can we can talk to who's able to help us and we do know that social support is probably the biggest protective factor that there is in mental health so building those things are things that we can proactively do to make sure we've got supports around us and of course it's reciprocal it's about providing that to others as well and all that comes from another foundation really which is about reflection and learning so thinking back based on self-awareness what didn't go well in the past how we might have improved our reaction to that what could we have done differently and what have we learned from that so sometimes things go badly we tend to ponder the negatives, but actually, I think if you think of a process, take forward the lessons and then change them and turn them into something going forward. And we see really good examples of um, of people who, who've managed to do that under the most extreme circumstances uh, and terrible life obstacles that have been thrown to them, and they've overcome them. And that's what it's all about, really. It's understanding that you can influence your own resilience. And you mentioned, of course, the link earlier between sort of resilience and mental health, particularly within the workplace. So can we can we view resilience then as a means of actually boosting mental health in the workplace? And with that, as well as resilience, are there any other ways that obviously we can look to improve that side of things? Yeah, well, I think um, I mentioned understanding, you know, the impact of our own behaviours on others. So when I'm feeling down or you know i'm feeling really stressed at work and i respond in a particular way and if i'm a leader actually that might not inspire others and actually it could put stress on other people um and sometimes we can just be 
you know, curt to people. We can just not be considerate because we're under stress ourselves. So just understanding self um, and how we interact with other people is a really good start point. And then, of course, looking at others as well and identifying those traits in them and working with them to try and help them to improve themselves. But really, this is about understanding people. And that's a fundamental part of leadership in my book. It's just understanding people, what makes them tick, and using psychologically informed management um, in the workplace to, to build teams and to promote morale. We do know that low morale is linked to high rates of mental health. So everything we can do to, to build morale in those facets is going to help. And you mentioned there psychologically informed management, and this is something, of course, that we have discussed on the uh, the programme before. But uh, again, yeah. for just first-time listeners, what is sort of your definition of psychologically informed management and how does that help? Well, I think it's sometimes called psychologically savvy uh, management. So basically thinking, adding a dimension to, you know, whatever we're going to do, we know something's going to be a difficult task, if it's coming along, anticipating the psychological element of that. So quite often people get stressed around change. So let's anticipate, actually, what are people going to be subjected to and how might they react to that? That's been psychologically savvy. It's not been wet. It's not been soft. It's just being clever, just understanding that we can manage our people better to get the best from them. And sometimes that's as simple as just listening and looking the person in the eye. And actually, there's nothing better in my book that when when things are going wrong, when things are going badly, when there are high rates of stress and people are really, really feeling it, what they need to know is that they're supported. And taking the time to walk down the corridor, sit down with a person and look them in the eye makes a huge difference. Rather than just sending a sympathetically worded email to someone, actually demonstrating that people care. And that demonstration element is a really important part, I think, of leadership uh, and being psychologically informed. But it's understanding how people are going to respond and knowing what we can do about that. So particularly training managers to, to notice the uh, the impact of stress in the workplace. Mm. And also notice the symptoms of it as well, because if you look at an employee who is looking stressed out, who is looking tired, then if you can recognise those signs, that then gives you that ability to go and intervene, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And uh, so in our, in our mental health and managers training, you know, quite a lot of what we do is talking about actually obligation. So quite often managers, particularly newly promoted managers, don't actually realise that they have legal and statutory responsibilities under particularly the Equality Act, which extends to our mental health as well as our physical health, and the Health and Safety Act as well. So we do have a responsibility to look after our, our people, particularly when they have vulnerabilities, and to make sure that they're properly managed. But you're right, being able to notice the, the signs and symptoms of mental health, not from a diagnostic perspective, just to be able to notice when things aren't right, when someone you know who's generally very productive, who works really, really well, suddenly they're not. Suddenly they're late to work. They look a bit disheveled. What's going on? And it may be that there's something going on in their personal life. And so having some empathetic uh, and kind leadership and demonstrating to people that you care makes a huge difference, particularly when you compare it to the alternatives and what tends to happen when people perceive that their leaders and their managers don't care about them. That leads to low morale, and we know, you know, uh, in those cases, higher rates of, of sickness absence and um, and mental health disorders. 
Mm, exactly right. And um, one of the sort of symptoms or outcomes of when things can go wrong in this way um, that we have talked about on quite a few episodes of this programme before as well is uh, burnout. And I just wanted to get your yep. take on that, Richard, actually. Um, burnout is, again, one of those very widely used terms, much like resilience. But how would you sort of initially define burnout within your own words? Is it just tiredness or is it a little bit more than that? No, no, it's much, much more than that. Um, so the, the, if I were to define it, I would say that um, burnout really is a state of emotional and physical exhaustion. It's where people just feel utterly drained. They lose their motivation. They don't enjoy their work. They start to get a little bit depressed. There's a lack of fulfillment. Maybe they become cynical. Um, they no longer look forward to going to work, and they just feel overloaded and unsupported. Those are all kind of symptoms of you know, what people might experience when they're burnt out. But the most important thing to remember about burnout is it doesn't have much to do actually with the individual. So it's the individual that's going to experience it, but the individual doesn't cause it. It's the working environment and the organization that causes burnout. So we know that workplace relationships and, um, and targets and demands that are placed on people and a lack of support and a lack of resources um, all of those things, which are prevalent, particularly in the current financial environment, mm. uh, all of those things put high levels of unacceptable stress on people. And it's not a fault in the person. It's not a weakness. It's the organization that's doing this. And, of course, that ties into the management. You know, the managers knowing that the environment and what we're, what we're asking of people, you know, is causing them to become burnt out. So burnout in itself is not a mental health disorder. You know, it's not a diagnosis in itself. What it is, if you like, is a, is a precursor to something more serious. So if people are working in environments that are promoting burnout and they're just putting up with it day in, day out, then chances are, very likely, that down the line they might experience something a little bit more serious like uh, depression or indeed anxiety or both. Um, and those are pretty common in, in those circumstances. So how do we fix it? Well, you know, you address the environment, basically. And if someone is really getting burnt out, then the way they can fix it in the short term is to take a break, take a holiday, get a rest, a few days off, um, or change their role or even their job. But we do know that if we leave people in that, um, in that zone of high distress for long periods of time, there's not just a mental health um, risk attached to that, there is a physical health risk attached to that as well. The two go hand in hand. And there's very good research going back some years, actually, that demonstrate to us the negative outcomes through being in high-stress environments for long periods of time. Yeah, the outcomes are incredibly terrible, aren't they? I mean, it's um, we have seen that through much research that's been done over the years, and it just goes to show as well that even if somebody manages to just barely hold it together in a high-stress environment for so long, I mean, I suppose it only takes one other thing in their life to maybe happen, start going wrong. So say, for instance, a family incident or bereavement or something, and that's when sort of you're on that slippery slope towards more serious issues, isn't it? Well, that's exactly right. And we talk all the time, <clears throat> excuse me, and, and all, uh, employers talk all the time about stress in the workplace, mitigating stress in the workplace. But you know what? There's no such thing in isolation because we all have personalised and we all have things going on elsewhere. And as you say, you know, being in a high-stress environment at work, maybe you can deal with that right now. But if there's no reserve in the tank and it suddenly fills up because there's something else going on in your life, then suddenly you're in deep, deep trouble. So um, it's about allowing people to keep that little bit of reserve in their tanks for those periods where high stress comes along. You can't influence their personal lives, but 
psychologically informed and empathetic leadership means that that gets recognized when a person is obviously not doing well. And then we do something to try and reduce the stress on them in work so that they can perhaps build a little bit of space to deal with their other problems. Uh, and also often people separate the two out as if they're unrelated. And, um, you know, you're limited on what you can do for people's mm. personal lives. Nevertheless, it reflects in the workplace. So just providing that bit of support and even just having a conversation with someone can make a huge, huge difference. It absolutely can. And uh, when we talk about the stress that people can face as well, that can come in the form of traumatic stress, can't it? It can be the result of a traumatic event, um, be, be it at work, be it outside of the workplace. Um, given you know the what we know through various pieces of research about the impact of this sort of stress, is it possible for managers and leaders to be able to effectively manage people who've been subject to that sort of experience? Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. Um, but again, it's important to understand the difference between managing someone who's been exposed to trauma um, and treating someone. So mm. contrary to popular belief, you know, being exposed to trauma and having some symptoms uh, of traumatic stress, the traumatic stress reaction, is not the same as having post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a more serious mental health disorder. But all of us, when exposed to trauma, will have some sort of reaction. But what we do know is that most people don't go on to develop a severe mental health disorder as a result. What happens is with time and with support, most people dust themselves off and they're able to carry on. And lots of the organisations that we work with, for instance, the NHS and the police and people like that, they are exposed to these things on a daily basis. You know, not once in a lifetime. These are daily, daily events. And they're not just direct traumas either. You know, we you see something... Um, you know, something happens to you if you're a police officer, someone tries to assault you, that's pretty traumatic. And that's direct and easy to understand. Mm. A secondary or indirect trauma is much more subtle. So, you know, you know, you might be a, a nurse and you're having to deal with the bereaved relatives of um of someone who, who sadly passed away or is you know, who was going to. Or you might be working as a lawyer and having to review um distressing images and witness statements, or maybe you're doing those interviews. Maybe you work in social services and you're having to speak to the victims of abuse and all those types of things. So that's indirect trauma. And the easiest way of describing that, I think, is that the experience didn't happen to you. It's not your experience, but you have been impacted by it, even though it's happened to someone else. But the end result, potentially, uh, is the same. You know, you could go on and develop something more seriously. So when we talk again about psychologically informed management, this is about early identification, providing tailored support, and where necessary, early intervention. So most people don't need clinical intervention. They just need some peer support and family support and so on. But some people will. And so what we do know is that the earlier we can identify them and then get them directed to sources of clinical support, the more likely they they will make an early and, uh, and good recovery. From, uh, from that trauma. Exactly right. And it's um, not necessarily about sort of differentiating the type of trauma either, is it, be it sort of primary or secondary, because as you've sort of hinted there, even secondary traumatic stress experiences can still lead to serious conditions and still impact people just as much, even if you sort of haven't lived through the abuse or the experience yourself sort of in full, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. And I think with our public services as well, um, the other thing that we see is exposure to serial trauma, where it's happening day in, day out. And if you think that 
horrendous things that you know, NHS staff have been exposed to, um, you know, during the COVID crisis. And we had the privilege of working with, with many of them and hearing these stories firsthand. What, what people do is they get their head down and they've got a mission to accomplish, i.e. support the patients, keep someone alive, whatever it may be. And they just push on. They push through that and they put it all behind them. And then further on down the line, that tank I referred to starts to fill up. It becomes very difficult. And maybe they just haven't dealt with those horrible experiences through avoidance. And they can come back and haunt you. So it's always about the longitudinal support to people um, afterwards. And referring back to that statement I made about exposure to long-term stress um, for a significant period of time, that there may be an impact, a subsequent impact down the line. And that is very, very common. So. It's about people getting closer, uh, managers and peers, and supporting each other and recognising these things as early as possible. And part of how Strong Mind, of course, is trying to help leaders within all walks of life do that is through your sort of trauma risk management training, isn't it? And that's proven hugely effective um, with some of the work that you've been doing with NHS staff um, who have sort of been traumatised and found difficulties during the uh, the COVID period. Um, has it been sort of a successful rollout more recently? And I imagine you're probably looking to sort of broaden your horizons with uh, the uh, the new trauma management, aren't you, as well? Yeah, I mean, it's not new. It's been around for a long time. And um, I, I uh, rolled back to the army when I was in the army, and, mm. and uh, it's still you know, heavily used in the military because the beauty of it is very flexible. You could do it in a, you know, we've delivered this to um, journalists, for instance. We've delivered this to people in the rail and transport industries. We've delivered this to prison officers and to doctors and nurses. So it, it's flexible and it works all over the place. But in terms of its effectiveness, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we maintain contact with the people that we train and they tell us that we've had this many referrals, we've picked up this many people and um, and people really appreciated us taking them aside and talking to them um, and doing it in an evidence-based way. And that's really important because sometimes what people do is they will jump in with both feet and, um, and they will start, you know, some sort of ad, ad hoc debriefing. And what we do know, and there is good research on this, is that that's unhelpful. Mm. Um, and nice actually tell us not to do psychological debriefing techniques you know they can be unhelpful so it's about having a considered approach and one of the things we do is we train people how to plan not just how to do it but how to plan a response to a traumatic event to make sure that we capture everyone and that they get a tailored management response which may include referral to clinical support and the impact needs to be great, doesn't it? And uh, these things need to be spotted early. We've talked about the uh, the real importance of that. And uh, obviously, we've branched out um, as well um, this um, this TRIM service, and even to the point of people who are sort of dealing with sort of emergency calls over the phone as well, haven't you? Because I mean, they are some of those people who may be directly exposed to that sort of secondary trauma that we've talked about when they're dealing people that are sort of living through stressful situations in that very moment. Yeah, absolutely. So. Certainly, the, the principles that we use from trauma risk management can be applied elsewhere. And there are lots and lots of organizations out there. Um, you know, we work with ACAS and Citizens Advice Bureau and all sorts of other organizations because they deal with very distressed um, people in, in dire circumstances. You know, people who are facing redundancy or, you know, bankruptcy or whatever. And, and the impact of those concerns and the stress on people, you know, can be really, really serious. And of course, when someone puts the phone down to talking to someone, you know, you're a human being. So people are going to be impacted by that. 
So again, understanding how to support colleagues in those situations. And if you're a manager, you know, building that psychologically informed system to make sure that people are captured and this isn't building up is really right, really important. So, you know, some de degree of effective supervision. I think most organisations understand the need for supervision in those cases, but in my experience, it's very often not particularly well done. I think we're moving away, aren't we, from this mentality of expecting people, certainly those sort of on the call side of things that we just talked about, uh, to sort of be that sort of thick-skinned, wooden personality, because it's just not yeah. possible, is it? I mean, people are going to be affected by sort of the experiences of the people that they speak to when they're working in these sorts of roles. And so, obviously, leaders within such organisations dealing with these things, as you've said, they do need to be very, very aware of this, and they've got to have those steps in place. Yeah, they should, and I can sort of hear people rolling their eyes. You know. <laughs> I've heard people rolling their eyes, you know, some of these statements because they're busy, they've got stuff to do, they don't have the time, and so on. But actually, I would have got the military approach to this. And one of the principles of military psychiatry is what we call expectancy. So actually, the start point is that we expect that people will deal with that stress and they will cope. So, for instance, a police officer goes to, you know, a horrible incident somewhere. Is it reasonable for us to expect that he will cope with that or he will, you know, that, that person will cope? Yes, we should. Of course we should. Um, but it's also, you know, it's about encouraging resilience, but it's also about making sure people are supported. And we understand that in some circumstances, people may not cope very well and that we provide the support to them. So it isn't about being, you know, soft and fluffy or, you know, giving everybody aromatherapy or whatever it might be. It's just about managing people in a sensible way. And all the evidence tells us very clearly, people do manage. They will get on with it. Um, and they're not all going to go off sick somewhere. You know, they do get on with things. Um, but we do need to support them and identify those people actually when the wheel comes off and they're not doing quite as well as perhaps they have done in the past. And for anyone in a position of sort of management or leadership tuning into this, plenty of food for thought for certain from this podcast. And of course, if you are a leader yourself with your own sort of story or point of view to come and share with us here at the Leaders' Council, then just to remind you, you are able to do that by applying to be on our programme via leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Um, Richard, I have to say it's been an immense pleasure welcoming you onto uh, today's programme to sort of talk about um, your trauma risk um, uh, management training and also uh, some of the uh, the benefits of psychologically informed management and sort of spotting the uh, the symptoms of sort of burnout and traumatic stress and otherwise early but before we do finish up on the show today um, I do want to just get an idea of over the next sort of 12 months or so what the um, sort of the plan and the aim is for the immediate future of Strongmind because I can imagine you're going to keep rolling this training out and keep trying to help more people but maybe there's a little bit more to it than even that. Yeah, no, I think um, I think our, our mission really is, as I said at the beginning, is just to continue to support people in you know, in the toughest jobs, um, and particularly the NHS. And we've got lots of training coming up, um, you know, in September with various NHS trusts around the country. And I always regard it as a great privilege to be able to support them and, and mm. our police as well. So we'll continue to do that. Um, but actually, what we do is quite a lot of bespoke work for organisations as well. So you know, we're dealing with a legal organisation at the moment. We're concerned about uh, you know secondary trauma in um, in paralegal staff, so we'll do lots of that. You know the telephone call centres, and we'll continue to develop ways of of helping those people that are, that are based on on good evidence, really. But what we're not going to do is expand into coaching and, um, and therapy and treatment. We know clearly where our boundaries are, 
we know we can make a difference through training people to manage properly. And I think that's probably the most impactful thing that can be done, you know, other than treating people who do become ill. So we'll just keep beavering away and uh, making sure that we encourage better support in all sorts of organisations. Absolutely right. It's just as important, obviously, as growth, as knowing your limitations, isn't it? And just, you know, branching out to what it is that you know that you can deliver effectively without compromising that standard of service. And, exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Absolutely right. And that, of course, is best practice in and of itself, isn't it? Um, Richard, it's, so. yeah, it's been an immense pleasure, of course, again, welcoming you back onto the uh, the programme. And thanks ever so much for joining us. And by all means as well, please do take care and stay safe with all this still going on as well. Scott, thank you very much. Uh, really enjoyed being on. Thanks for having me. It was an immense pleasure. And uh, to everybody tuning into the show today, I do hope that you enjoyed the interview with Strong Mind Resiliency Training's Richard Dorney today. Um, I have been your host on the Leaders' Council podcast, Scott Challoner, and please do all take care and goodbye until next time. <laughs>